Welcome to History Class After Hours. I'm Joseph Barra, and joining me for this season finale is one Eli. Season finale. Ep season one. What a season. I mean... 25 episodes. That's impressive. So for those of you that don't know, um, I taught Eli when he was a freshman, and now he's a junior, and he has been a member of our history club an important member of our history club for the last three years and we just kind of started throwing out the idea about three years ago of starting a podcast yeah and i really tried i really tried sophomore year. and then first we we so we spent that freshman year building a website which eli did a fantastic job on you can check it out at www.starsmillhistoryc.wixsite.com forward slash 2020 there you go because <laughs> i haven't changed that's yet. a that's a <laughs> It's one a, website link. Um, so did that, and then as we started kind of throwing the idea of doing the podcast more, COVID hit, and everything got shut down. And then randomly in January, Eli was like, let's do the podcast. Yeah. And then quickly we turned around, and we have recorded 25 episodes. In thank you for your hard work, months. sir. That's three really months. impressive. Yes, thank you for your hard work. Thank you. It thank does you not for, go you know, un unnoticed. What a host you've been. Whew. <laughs> you do 90% of our research, so... Ah, I enjoy it. So, we are ending with one Benjamin Franklin Butler. Yep. So, we've talked about him last two episodes. Lawyer, man of many contradictions, and then he gets involved in the Civil War and does a lot of weird things in New Orleans where he's still <laughs> despised today, and you kind of see him becoming very egotistical... Where he basically says, if you sin against God, you have sinned against me? Is that what he said? No, he's saying if you sinned against him, you sinned against okay. God. Yes, all right. <laughs> um, then he's put in charge of some military operations. That doesn't go, go very well. He's relieved of his command, but he's still kept in the army because he is supposed to be the prosecutor of Jefferson Davis after the war. Very interesting guy. So now we're going to talk about what he does after the war. So, as the war came to an end, Butler's negative perceptions were increased by his questionable financial dealings, as well as those by his brother, Andrew, uh -oh. that worked as his financial proxy and was given free reign to engage in, quote, exploitative business deals and other questionable activities. If you don't remember, when he was in New Orleans, he would seize a lot of property, sell it on auction, and his brother would go in there and be pretty much the only person bidding on it. <laughs> yeah, see, that's, uh, I don't think that's legal. I think, I think yep. that's uh, a little illegal. So He's going to send a federal warship to send $60,000 in sugar to Boston, where he expected to double the profit. He was reported to the military authorities, who, however, made him give it up. It is believed that his brother had occurred somewhere between one to two million dollars of profit in new orleans during his time in the civil war that's a good to six to seven eight million today. that's a very high chunk that's of change a lot of money. that's generational wealth right there i mean benjamin would claim it was less than two hundred thousand yeah which right. is also a lot of okay, money that's all yeah like today that's like what more than half a million so if not a million yeah after Benjamin was replaced in New Orleans by Nathaniel Banks, Andrew tried bribing him with $100,000 to allow him to continue his business dealings. Um, 
Butler dealing while he was in Virginia was also shading, or his dealings while he was in Virginia were also on the shady side. Historian Ludwill Johnson concluded that during that period, quote, there can be no doubt that a very extensive trade with the Confederacy was carried on um, in Butler's Norfolk department. This trade was extremely profitable for Northern merchants and was a significant help to the Confederacy. It was conducted with Butler's help and a considerable part of it was in the hands of his relatives and supporters. Hmm. So he was actively allowing his relatives to sell things to the Confederacy to help them to make money and at the same time it was helping the Confederacy prolong the war. What is, what is with this guy? I think Benjamin Butler, my, this is my take, I think he was probably pretty sad when the war ended. Well, yeah, I mean, Benjamin Butler is, like, one of the few people that, you know, actually did good during the war. Not that, like, what he did was good, but, like, at the end of the war. Economically, yes, profiteering. he, but, I mean, first of all, he's like, I'm going to shut down New Orleans to everything and, you know, execute a guy. But also, I'm going to allow people to sell illegal items. Yes. Butler's actions were counteracting Grant's attempts to cut off supplies from the South. Local farmers would purchase cotton from the Confederate government, then take it through the lines and trade it for general supplies. Grant would say, uh, while the army was holding Lee in Richmond, an inefficiency or permission of an officer selected by General Butler from Norfolk through the Albemarle and Chesapeake Canal. Hmm. So pretty much, he, Grant knows, Lee is, Lee is receiving supplies and General Butler is probably the reason for that. Probably one of the reasons why he but wanted Butler out. Butler's replacement was appalled on the ongoing trade. It was reported that $100,000 of goods left Norfolk daily and was given to rebel armies. That's also a lot of supplies. That is. A 60-page report was conducted on the wrongdoings of Butler. However, Lincoln will be assassinated, and the report just kind of goes by the wayside. Oh, well, yeah, that's going to happen when, you know, the president's assassinated. Yeah, so now, like, all the focus on whatever agencies were involved on the investigation on Butler returned to figuring out who was behind the Lincoln assassination. No disrespect to Abraham Lincoln, but also think about the guy that just wrote the 60-page report. I mean, the man's like, I just did all that. For nothing. (laughs) (laughs) So in 1865, Butler would seek a position in the Lincoln administration, but that would obviously come to an end (laughs) when Lincoln was assassinated. In 1866, Butler would argue in the U.S. Supreme Court on behalf of the U.S. in ex part Milligan. The decision was that civilians could not be tried in a military court if civilian courts were still operating and there was no war. There's no war and civilian courts are still operating, so I don't see what the issue is here. Later that year, Butler would be elected to Congress. Oh, no. Uh, His platform was based off of civil rights and a strong opposition to Andrew Johnson's weak Reconstruction policies. Remember, Butler wanted the South punished, and so you had those radical Reconstructionists that were really, really in favor of Butler. I still, okay, so he sells illegal items, makes a whole bunch of money off the South, helps them in the war it's almost you know probably if that report had gone through and lincoln hadn't been assassinated he would have been arrested for war for treason and war i mean uh that's 
Yeah. He, he, his career and everything would have ended right it, there. Uh, at the very least, his career is over. Right. Yeah. So, like, at his reputation is damaged, over. all mm-hmm. that. But because of Lincoln being assassinated and the fact that the report never went through, he now has the opportunity to punish the South, which in turn he was trying to help, even though he was also Well, the only reason them. he was trying to help them was to make money. But still, like... I could see him having, like, this, this scheme where he's, like, giving them goods and then confiscating them and then giving them and back. then confiscating just... But I just don't... But, yeah. He's so confusing. Well, it's going to get more confusing. Oh, why? He's also going to support women's suffrage in hmm. an eight-hour workday. Remember, he was an early proponent of the 10-hour workday. He wants to drop down that to eight. And the issuance of greenback currency. Greenbacks were paper currency that were issued by the United States during the American Civil War, and they were printed in green on the back. Okay. They were in, they were, they were in two forms. The man notes, which were issued in 1861 and 1862, and United States notes issued in 1862 and 1865. They were legal tender by law, but were not backed by gold and silver, and only the credibility of the U.S. government. So that is the precursor to us going off the what? Gold standard. The gold standard. Which Who took us off the gold standard? Didn't... Was it Nixon? The gold standard mm-hmm. was... I think it was before Nixon. Was it? I, I think always it, was, it was Nixon. I thought it was Johnson. Mm. All right. It's one of those. Just to let you know, your money's not backed by anything anymore. Nope, it's just paper. It's just paper. It's yeah. backed by confidence in the United we States. We actually don't know. Like, if the confidence went down, we'd, we'd be in trouble. Correct. So, But yeah. we got all that gold to eventually back it, right? Can we just... No, we don't. We, we don't? I thought it's all sitting in a fort in Kentucky somewhere. I don't, I don't think fort so. Fort Knox? Is, Is that just a myth? Folklore. I, I've never heard that before. Really, all the golds in Fort Knox, supposedly. I don't. I don't. I don't think I've ever heard that before. Well, I really? do know that people are buying gold more now. Like, they are because it's uh, it retains its value. Yes. Especially, you, you typically see, you know, when the economy is starting to go back, so then people start buying gold and silver. Yeah. You start seeing the commercials on TV that are like, "We'll give you the free gold pamphlet and one gold coin." Yeah. Sure. <laughs> Butler would serve four terms as a congressman from 1867 to 1875 before losing re-election, but he wouldn't be out for long because he would be elected again in 1876. As a year. What the heck? (laughs) Butler had angered the Republican establishment in Massachusetts with his support of women's suffrage and support of the Greenback. How dare he want women to vote? Oh, man. Which is also quite interesting as a guy who said if you insult a soldier or dump your poo on his head, you're a prostitute. Yes. Um, Contradictive. Another contradiction. And it's just, that's just weird, too, how you, because you want women to vote, you, or you're not reelected. Like, that's such a hot, like, how dare he? <laughs> that's also an issue, though, because, you know, it's a, that wouldn't happen until 1920. 1919, whole, 1919, 1919, sir. 1919 the 19th and 19th Amendment. Women were finally given the right to vote. Whew. What a, what a. Still way ahead of his time. Right? Yes, he was very well ahead of his time. His former rival, Ebenezer Hoare, would succeed in blocking him a nomination to be governor and his house seat. Remember, that was the guy that had written bad newspaper articles about him. <laughs> During the impeachment of Andrew Johnson, Butler would be one of the case managers and basically take over the case. Johnson would be acquitted by one vote. Hmm. 
Butler would write the initial version of the Civil Rights Act of 1871, also known as the KKK Act. The act empowered the president to suspend the writ of habeas corpus to combat the KKK and other white supremacist groups. Habeas corpus is the one that gives... Habeas corpus means if they arrest you, they have to tell you what the charges are. Oh, yeah. See, that's kind of a big thing. So now they could just arrest you and then just... They don't have to tell you what your charges are? Correct. You see, that's kind of a big issue. You kind of need habeas corpus. He would then pen the Civil Rights Act of 1875, which called for a law banning racial discrimination in public accommodations. Uh, however, it was eventually deemed unconstitutional with what court case? Which would create separate but equal. equal. Plessy versus Ferguson. Plessy versus Ferguson. Or 96. 1996? 1896. Yes. Oh, there's too many. <laughs> the fact that it repeats every year just... <laughs> Butler would restore his relationship with Grant and become one of his biggest allies in the House. When Butler died, he would be worth around $7 million, which is about $200 million in today's currency. Oh, my gosh. Much of that wealth came from his dealings in New Orleans. Shockingly... His mills never suffered from the cotton shortages that other mills suffered from in the North during the Civil War. Oh, no. Um, and so why. he was also, to make a, also able to make a lot of money off of that as well. I wonder why that never happened. After learning that no domestic manufacturer produced bunting, he invested in another Lowell mill to produce it and convinced the federal government to enact legislation requiring domestic sources for material used for government buildings. Do you know what bunting is? No. Well, other than in baseball, when you hit the ball, you know, down. You know, those, like, red, white, and blue, like, ribbons that are, like, hung on buildings mm -hmm. or, like, the fortress. That's bunting. Oh. So, pretty much, he gets a law passed that all government buildings, when they have bunting, it has to be made in the United States. And guess who the supplier is going to be? He just gave himself a nice government contract. Yeah. He's also going to start the United States Cartridge Company, which made ammunition and by World War One was supplying the army with 60% of its ammunition. wonder how he got that contract. I have an idea. However, he is going to have some bad business dealings as well. Oh, really? He had failed real estate uh, dealings in Virginia, Colorado, and the Baja Peninsula. Where is that, the Baja Peninsula? South California. Okay. Fraudulent gold mining operation in North Carolina. He also lost money when he deceived. He was deceived in the, the diamond hoax of 1872. It was a <laughs> swindle in which a pair of prospectors sold a false American diamond deposit to prominent businessmen in San Francisco and New York City. It also triggered a brief diamond prospecting craze in western, in the western U.S. in Arizona, New Mexico, Utah, Wyoming, and Colorado. So basically, these guys were like. We have this huge diamond mine. You guys want to be part of it? And all these like rich people who had, who knew nothing about diamonds or anything like that were like, "Sure, we'll buy stakes in your." And there was no diamond mine, but word got out that there was this diamond mine there. So this like fake, almost like gold rush thing started in the American Southwest of people looking for diamond mines that were non-existent. Interesting. Because I don't think diamonds are found in the American Southwest. I don't. I don't. Yeah, I don't think so. I don't think so. Because mm -mm. typically. You need coal for diamonds. Yeah, you don't usually find coal nope. in the Southwest. 
Butler was also very charitable with his money. He purchased confiscated farms in Virginia during the war and gave them to co-ops, which were managed by free slaves. He sponsored a scholarship for African Americans at Phillips Andover Academy. And he also held an executive position for the National Home for Disabled Volunteer Soldiers. Hmm. So once again, you're seeing this man as a very complicated person. He does very horrible things, but then at the same time, he does very noble things as well. Except for New Orleans. Nothing he did in New Orleans was noble. Okay, yeah. <laughs> Butler built a mansion immediately across the street from the United States Capitol in 1873-1874, and it is known as the Butler Building. Ah. One unit of the building was constructed to be fireproof so that it could be rented as storage for valuable and irreplaceable survey records, maps, and engraving plates of the U.S. coast and geodetic survey whose headquarters in the Richards building was directly next door. The building was also used by President Chester A. Arthur while the White House was being refurnished. I know absolutely nothing about Chester A. Arthur. Did he do anything? I don't, I don't think so. He was just there. He was just a I think okay. it's one of those presidents, like, after, so, you know... He's Buchanan, between, like, Reconstruction... So, like, Buchanan starts Civil War, Lincoln, through Civil War, Hayes and Johnson finish Reconstruction... Then, like, from Grant, the, or yeah, or Grant, from like Grant in like 1777 to, you know, when Wilson, not Wilson, Roosevelt, no, McKinley is elected in 98. No one, no one knows what those presidents did because the United States was just corruption rings and <laughs> it was basically owned, it was the start of like that big business thing. So, monopolies. Chester A. Arthur. <laughs> I forgot he was the president. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Most people, if you go up on the street and say, Chester A. Arthur, who is he? Mm, nope. No one's going to know. I, He's just that. I bet, you, I bet you I can walk into my next exam period and just be like, who is he? Nope. Um, no one's going to know. On April 10th, 1891, the Department of Treasury purchased the building from Butler for $275,000, and it became the headquarters of the U.S. Marine Hospital Service with its hygienic laboratory, which will be the predecessor of the National Institutes of Health occupying its top floor. Hmm. wonder if the Butler building's still there. I need to check that out. In 1882, Butler was elected governor, governor, <laughs> governor of Massachusetts with the support of the Greenback Party and Democrats. So he's crossing the aisle here. As governor, Butler was active in promoting reform and uh, competence in administration. He had appointed the state's first Irish-American and African-American judges. He appointed the first women to executive office, that woman being Clara Barton, who's the founder of the Red Cross. Red Cross. She was put in charge of, um, I think, like, Department of Health. He exposed the gross mismanagement of the state's Tewksbury Almshouse by previous governors. So almshouses were, like, um, places where the poor were able to seek refuge. All right. Um, it was Massachusetts tradition that the governor would earn an honorary degree from Harvard. However, this tradition was stopped by Butler. This was because Ebenezer Hoare was the head of the board of overseers and voted against it. So this feud from like 50 years back is still going on between Ebenezer Hoare and, and Butler. 
Hoare would find, fund a successful campaign, though, to get Butler out of the office during the next election. In the feat, Butler would start the tradition of the lone walk, which basically he walks, I guess now the governor of Massachusetts, like on her last day, just walk out of the doors of the mansion by themselves. Hmm. And they may get applauded, jeered, who knows. In 1882, he would successfully litigate in the Supreme Court case Juilliard versus Greenman. The court ruled that the government could issue paper currency for public and private debts, which, which I believe is bonds. Gotcha. Government bonds. 1884, he made an unsuccessful run as a third-party candidate during the presidential election. Who was elected in 1884? Was it Chester? <laughs> I think, I, maybe. I mean, it could be Chester. See, no one remembers. Who's after Grant? I thought it was Arthur. It was Arthur. It was Chester. Oh, insult to injury. Please tell me it's Chester A. Arthur. <laughs> I really hope it is. <laughs> Uh, anyway, we'll he figure loses. it out. He loses. In his later years, Butler reduced his activity level, working on his memoir, Butler's book, which was published in 1892, and serving from 1866 to 1879 as president of the National Home for Disabled Volunteer Soldiers. On January 11, 1893, though, Butler is going to die from complications of a bronchial infection the day after arguing a case in front of the Supreme Court. He's buried in his wife's family cemetery in Lowell, Massachusetts. The inscription on his headstone reads, quote, The true touchstone of civil liberty is not that all men are equal, but that every man has the right to be the equal of every other man if he can. End quote. If that is not the most contradictive statement ever, that 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 describes him. Because I mean, that's the most like. Not every man is equal, but every man can be equal. The what? <laughs> so, according to his biographer Hans L. Trefus, who we started off episode one with, his legacy can be summed up as. Butler is one of the most controversial 19th century American politicians. Demagogue, spectacular military bungler, and sharp legal practitioner. He was all these, and he was also a fearless advocate for justice. And that's what he, that's what, I mean, basically we started off this episode of Butler with. Um, I feel like we should end up calling him America's biggest narcissist. I had it originally titled The Ultimate Heel, but... <laughs> American. Uh, but, I mean, he did... The walking contradiction? He, yeah, I mean, like... Morally, he's corrupt in the form of everything... Anything, he'll do whatever he needs to make money. Yeah, but also, as we talked about, who, who, who in history and power isn't morally corrupt? Yeah. I mean... Everyone has some... Money corrupts people. It does. Yes. We see that a lot in history. But at the same time, you can see that he is such a big proponent of, first... Like, women's rights. Women's rights. African-American rights. African-American rights. And it's interesting that he helps... Workers' like, rights. Immigrants, even though, like, earlier he's... I guess he's not. Or, like, even that he's so focused on money throughout his life, he's still willing to work for the working class and getting them better working conditions and things like that, which in turn would actually lose him, him lose him money. 
I guess, yeah. Because instead of working a 16-hour day, he drops down to half. Eight. Yeah. It's just an interesting guy. I mean, he constantly contradicts himself at everything that he does, but also, like, you know, it's, it's just a weird... He's uh, an interesting guy. He's we'll, interesting we'll put it guy. at that. Way to end the season. Good way to end the season. Also, he lost to Grover Cleveland in 84. Oh, not Grover. <laughs> so, so it's not that much insult to injury. I was saying if Chester Arthur beat him, <laughs> then moved into his house, his building, that would just be bad. And the, uh, the Butler building is actually no longer there. It surprisingly burned down in a fire. Except that one room? No, it, everything burned down. Oh, Even so the room was wasn't fireproof? fireproof. Uh, how, huh. do you, how do you test that? You can't test a fire. You can't really test a fire. No. setting it on fire. So. Oh, well, it happens. Yep, no longer there. Well, thank you for listening uh, to the podcast this season. Season one. And uh, please join us for season two. Which is next week. <laughs> Woo! All right. Thank you for tuning in to History Class After Hours, the show where we talk about the things your history teachers didn't have time to teach you. If you wanted to stay updated on upcoming events for the History Club, please visit www.starsmillhistoryc.wixsite.com forward slash 2020. If you liked this episode, please share it with your friends and subscribe to our channel on iTunes Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening. Be on the lookout for new episodes, and we'll be posting every week. Until next time, stay curious.